This is the Bureau of Lost Culture, and this is episode 101. I'm Stephen Coates. Sid Barrett, one of the founding members of Pink Floyd, has died at the age of 60. A statement from the band described him as a guiding light who leaves a legacy which continues to inspire. He left the Pink Floyd in 1968 and lived as a recluse in Cambridge for three decades. The romantic ideal is that a creative person is drawn by something so powerful that he or she will follow that regardless of the price that has to be paid. I discovered Pink Floyd's music through the music they made in the late 70s. For people who were listening to those records first and what they knew, they knew that there had been this guy, Sid. The story was always, oh, he went mad and left the group. There was religious acid taking at that time. Sid was one of the sort of saints of that underground cult. He really did feel that the psychedelic revolution was flowing right through his body. Sid defined the whole of that moment in the 60s. The story was always, oh, he went mad and left the group. They were so totally and unbelievably original. He launched them into space. At that time, everybody was dropping acid in London. But not everybody was dropping acid like he was. But he wasn't the only one. There are some people who must have a weakness of some sort, like a switch waiting to be turned, and that switch will go, and they'll never quite come back. The band went on being more and more successful, and where was Sid? He decided that he no longer wanted to be a pop star. I suppose what is sad is about somebody who is still extremely relevant just decides to stop. Hello, welcome back. This episode, as I'm sure you may have guessed by now, is about a perennial and favourite subject of ours, Sid Barrett psychedelic ghost who haunts these parts and still haunts me and I think many of us for lots of reasons. But the main reason to give him another episode of the Bureau of Lost Culture is because this year a film, Have You Got It Yet, was released which is all about him, all about his life and times seen through the memories of his friends. And one of those friends, Jenny Spires, is the reason that I'm able to make this interview today with film's director, Rory Bugawa. Thank you, Jenny, as ever, for all your suggestions, as well as this. It's a terrific film, rather moving, funny, a window into a particular time. Lots of the interviewees are now dead, and Storm Thorgerson, who is one of the main makers of the films, of course, is now dead also. But I met with Roddy to talk about the film and about Sid Barrett, his thoughts on it, to see if we could solve some of the mysteries. I don't think we did, but I think we at least explored them. And we also explored some other subjects, which I found very interesting. Growing up in Los Angeles in the 1970s, that's Roddy, not me, uh, discovering music, discovering punk, discovering experimental films. Roddy is the director, and I'm going to link to his work and, of course, to the film in the show notes. But let's go back in time to those early days of psychedelia in the mid-60s in the presence of Sid Barrett and of Roddy. Hi, Stephen. How are you? It's great to be here. Welcome to the Bureau of Lost Culture. Thank you. Thank you. We're going to talk about the film. Have you got it yet? Of course, we're going to talk about Sid Barra. I thought we could start, though, by actually talking about you, just to give us and the listeners a little, you know, potted biography of you, what your work is and, you know, what, what led up to this movie. My parents, you know, both uh, fifth and fourth generation in Hawaii, but I was born in Los Angeles. The Probably the first big counterculture kind of exposure was music for me. Mm. Absolutely. You know, that... This was the time of, of vinyl records being, I remember there were $4.99 from Licorice Pizza or something like that, which was quite expensive, you know, for, for a teen. And so we would, you know, we would share records, you know, trade records, 
play each other songs. This is the mid seventies going towards the late seventies. You know, it was, you know, listening to rock music, listening to primarily British rock too, my friends and I. Um, so Deep Purple and Led Zeppelin and Pink Floyd and, and Black Sabbath, these bands. Probably the first moment where I, I saw pictures of musicians and said, oh, I want to dress like that and, you know, have my hair like that. We're so obsessed with the vinyl records designs. I mean, this leads to some of the stories around Sid Barrett in the film. We would look at who designed the albums, there were secret messages inscribed on the on the vinyl and things like that, all those types of weird obsessive kind of details, you know? And so my friends and I were, were, were deep into that, you know? And I think it was really, that was the moment, you know, you show up one day at high school and you've completely transformed yourself. I'm no longer this California skateboarder, you know, now deep into to music. Mm. And, um, you know, and the first concert that I went to was uh, Pink Floyd on the Animals Tour, uh, Anaheim Stadium, which was about an hour away from where I, my parents lived. And my father drove me there in his VW Bug, a friend of mine and I, and dropped us off at four in the morning. You know, God bless him. And literally said, okay, I'll meet you here in about 11 hours, you know, row five, section C, you know, <laughs> we're like, okay, see you later, dad. You know, it was, it was an amazing show. It was really like first live experience mm. to see that. They had some of the inflatables with, you know, the, the pig with the laser lights in the eyes and things like that. And so from that moment on, you know, I was, I was like, oh, I've got to go see show. Right. I got the bug from that. As it turns out, this English kid showed up one day in my high school. Matthew played drums. And so immediately, you know, we were in this art class and we were like, let's start a band. And so we started a band, and, you know, we'd play in our garage and bang around and stuff like that. And then probably the other big event that happened was one day he showed up with an enemy and he plopped it in front of me and it just said punk. <laughs> and he said, this, this is it. Uh, and I was like, what is that? And, um, you know, there were a bunch of used record shops in LA. There was Rhino Records, which has become this monster label, but they were a used record shop. So you could, they had listening booths in the back, like the old 60s style kind mm. of thing. And so literally, you know, we went there every other day, you know, looking through the enemy of all these bands. And this is 1976, I want to say 77. You know, we went to see the jam at right. uh, at UCLA, which was just incredible. I mean, they, it, they, they got every punk show banned after that, you know, that the, the the fans tore out the seats and were pogoing and <laughs> and uh, and then quite we changed then really from the sort of uh, the, the the kind of rock behemoths. I mean, that was the thing, wasn't it? With punk, it was that like out with the old, in with the new, right? Yeah, it was. But you're right, absolutely. When 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 the punk stuff hit, all of a sudden you're in the small club, yeah, and smashed yeah. together, yeah, and sweating. You know, Matthew and I. You know, we would literally go see bands just based on their name. Saw the teardrop explodes at the whiskey just because we were like. Oh, we have to go see this band. That's a great like, name. Any band, yeah, any, any band who has the name The Teardrop Explodes, we're going to go see. So I saw Julian Cope very early on. Psychedelic Furs, same. And the interesting thing about the punk shows, that was the first time, I think, where I came exposed to runaway kids, queer kids, Mexican-American kids. There was a lot of Mexican-American kids in the mm -hmm. punk scene in L.A. And all of a sudden, I was like... This is my tribe. <laughs> All the things that probably growing up as Asian American kid in, kid in LA, I'd always thought of myself as completely assimilated. You know, I was a skateboarder. Sure. All of a sudden, I was like, oh, wait, wait a minute. You can embrace being different. You can embrace the underground scene. And it was exciting. When we interviewed people talking about the UFO club in London and that, all that sort of stuff sounded like the same kind of excitement to me. I, I saw really some parallels, you know, just like you didn't know what was going to be happening. You know, it was all just like, let's see where this goes. Going uh, probably to two or three shows a week, you know, for a span of several years, because I think that was the first time I thought about identity in a very conscious way. You know, up to that, it was more about trying to fit in or trying to be cool. And all of a sudden it was like, no, wait, you can be different. You can be alternative. There was not really a, a big art scene in Los Angeles at that time, but the music scene was really exploding. In, in terms of like uh, identity, I don't know if it's still the case. I hope so, you know, because it's, it's a little difficult to tell, isn't it, in the kind of in Spotify age, whether it's still the same sort of thing. But, but certainly you, know, you didn't know who you were. You hadn't right. had enough experience to be anything really so you sort of identified yourself mainly through music 
books and films and your and your friend your friend your tribe as you say right so we're a small group of people particularly if you sort of find your tribe it's a kind of wonderful part of a youth culture slash counterculture right there was inklings of it like i had a sort of hippie-ish english teacher you know there's a moment where we were reading dune you know and then then some kids were reading the hobbit and you'd be like i'm a dune person i'm not a (laughs) hobbit person you know i distinctly remember that that split you know so there was kind of funny actually hearing you talking about la because of course you know maybe for you seeing these british bands you know whether it be pink floyd led zeppelin or the jam must have been very exotic because they're coming from this kind of faraway european island but actually of course certainly for me in my 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 late teens the west coast of america held a similarly kind of logical place you know for even though it was decades before you know reading the beats you know reading kerouac and these these talk about these kind of picaresque trips across america holding up in big sur as a sort of fire watchman that for me was a kind of like similar exotic and wonderful other world you know which you could escape to from in my case a small town in northern england <laughs> yeah 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 no absolutely i mean i you know when i when i was researching uh on the material for the film you know watching the big poetry uh performance show at the royal albert hall in the 60s you know where ginsburg and fairland getty and and pete brown and all those people it was like these sparks of all these things happening in culture or counterculture at that point the ripple effect of that is just massive i think i mean really all my friends i would say we share music and books as our unifying principles still you know whether or not people have gone into the art world and been massively successful you know, we, we bonded originally, you know, when we were all starting out, uh, talking about music and how, right. how much, how much it changed, you know, retuned how we thought of the world. And for me, it came films became that as well in America, the underground avant-garde stuff, but then also foreign films from the sixties, you know, were huge influence on, on my filmmaking practice. So take us from that teenage kid who's like down at the clubs, punk clubs twice, three times a week and, and finding out who he is to, you know, becoming a filmmaker and genesis of this project. And there was two things that happened simultaneously. My mother bought me a camera, a Canon 35 millimeter camera, and I started sneaking those into shows. A friend of mine's older sister worked at, at, at the door of the whiskey, but I would take apart the camera and put one part under one un- underarm and the other on the other underarm. And once you were in the club, you know, and you had a camera, people thought you should have it. So it didn't bother you, but I would sneak it in. And so I started taking pictures at all the shows. Uh, that I would go to and I would show my friends. And then the other thing was that I bullied my parents into getting me a guitar. And then when I went off to college, bummed around, I was a philosophy major for a while and the psychology for a little bit, and uh, then ended up in a film class. And it was a history of cinema class. And the professor was about 20 minutes late. And so in California in the early 80s, you could still smoke in the lecture halls. Your people had their dogs there. So it was, you know, it was like, absolute mayhem there's about 200 people in the in the theater people are throwing frisbees around i remember you know and and the professor this french guy waddled up to the microphone and it, it was uh, jean-pierre garan who uh, was jean-luc godard's collaborator in the 60s in france did all the ziga vertov group films and he walked in you know like in the middle of this mayhem and just walked up to the microphone and he just said this is where the history of cinema started and the lights went down and the film that came on was Peeping Tom by Michael Powell. As in Powell and Pressburger? Oh. Yeah, but it's about a serial killer who has a parabolic mirror around the lens of his film camera and a dagger in the tripod leg. And he, and he murders people and films them watching themselves being murdered. And so the lights come on and he's not there. And all of a sudden I was just like, what the hell is this about? I sort of started taking all these classes with them and uh, he showed a, one of his films, which had all this, you know, text and screen black. First documentary he had done in the United States. He had he had broken up with Godard, went to Mexico, but ended up in San Diego. And he showed this film and I looked at it and I was like, wow, this is like a punk rock movie. It's like this film could have been made for five dollars. And I thought, well, I can make films. And mm-hmm. And literally that was the moment where those things kind of meshed you know in los angeles there was no independent film and so there was only hollywood films and television and all of a sudden i was like wait a minute you can make film with you know as as jp used to always say two rocks and a stick was it goddard who said all you need is a girl and a gun yeah yeah uh and so i started 
I started, you know, doing photo text things and then and started making little short films, Super 8 and then 16 millimeter. You know, for me, it just got got me all the things about the photography I've been doing and sound and music. Sadly, that was when I broke up my last band, too, as I, I was in bands all through college. And I yeah. went in one day and I said, I've become a filmmaker now. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, so, sorry, guys. <laughs> I love this because that punk spirit you know, translating that across to film. I get the impression, you know, talking to people from the punk era, musicians and club owners and also fans, that that was the great thing about it, wasn't it? Is is that like, it was suddenly, you can do this. You can make a record. You can make a record without a record label. You can make a record with very little amount of money. You know, you don't need this huge music industry thing. You know, you can do it yourself, DIY, right? The thing about, say, bands like Pink Floyd uh, and all, by that time, they'd become like kind of Greek gods, weren't they? You know, you watch them on these distant stages. They were completely like uh, invisible in a way as, as people. The music industry in the mid-70s and then punk comes along, and I guess you're saying the same thing about film, when somebody or some people say, you know what, fuck all that. Pick up a camera, buy electric guitar, get in a basement, three chords, and you're off. There is something deeply countercultural about that, I think. Yeah. I mean, I can testify that it was absolutely, absolutely true. Joe Sturmer was the other totem for me mm. at that moment. And I, I became friends with Joe mm. and he's in one of my movies much later. I can absolutely testify that those bands did say to me and my friends directly, look, you know, we're only a couple years older than you. You should just start a band. You know, that it was across the board, you know, it was like, the guitar player from Killing Joke. I saw Killing Joke early on and we talked about Led Zeppelin and Jimmy Page. He was a big Jimmy Page fan. I was like, really? (laughs) But it was the same thing. They were like, you know, you know, just pick up a guitar and, you know, it's about expression and it's about what you want to say. Don't have to have this kind of technical proficiency so long as you've got this message of whatever it is, somehow communicating something. And I think it was, it was trying in an interesting way to rupture you know, what the music industry had become, Mm. that it seemed unattainable, like you're saying, in many ways. You did the same thing with film. So for you, like being shown these films and this guy sort of, you know, rock waddling up to the microphone and in a way was the kind of equivalent for you in the next stage. And I know that the technical barriers to sort of making independent film are greater, you know, just the actual equipment is more expensive and, you know, there's a lot of other stuff that you need. And it was the sort of second stage of DIY sort of liberation for you. Yeah, I mean, big thing to see the underground film, the European avant-garde films, you know, Peter Whitehead, you know, as part of that scene, but they were making films, you know, with 16 millimeter gear, much cheaper, one take. Why is the film that long? Well, that was the the length of one roll of film and that's it. You know, and then all of a sudden seeing all the underground films, you know, the Warhol films, I, I went, I remember and I saw almost every program of this Andy Warhol film retrospective. And I was just like, holy cow, this is like, as you mentioned, Stephen, is exactly a parallel. You could say maybe it was just conceptual art in some way. And I think mm-hmm. a lot of bands were, you know, punk bands were conceptual art in some ways. A lot of bands sort of would define themselves like that. Film, although it was perceived as being very expensive, you could just use black leader. It was free in our department and have sound. <laughs> Things like that, you know, just come up with other inventive ways to get across your ideas. It was very interesting to to me to all of a sudden get exposed to all that, the underground film world, uh, which absolutely was countercultural in every aspect, you know, whether it was in content or form. Not the best for a film career trajectory to follow that but you know but it's always been the the motor behind you know why i make stuff still i still play guitar too by Good. the way <laughs> <laughs> roddy let's let's leap forward to have you got it yet and i wanted to, to mix what we've been talking about with what we're going to talk about in the film when uh, there's an interview with mick rock the phot- rock photographer and uh, who was a friend of sid barrett's and says that out in idaho they know who pink floyd is but not who Sid Barrett was. And I think the listeners of this show know who Sid Barrett was. If you don't, he was the original sort of founder member, singer of Pink Floyd as they were, as they began, um, sort of got them going in a way, wrote all the material for the first album, two hit singles, and was the poster child, absolutely gorgeous looking, in a way kind of like the, the, the psychedelic prince of that era. But when Mick Rock said that, 
um, he, the reason he's saying that is, is that, of course, Floyd, after Sid Barrett, went on to become this one of the most successful rock bands in the world. You just talked about, you know, your, your first show seeing them at a stadium later on in the career. And so, you know, pretty much everybody's heard of them, right? But lots of people still probably haven't heard of Sid Barrett. Was Mick Rock right to say that? There's absolutely always been camps of, I like the Sid Barrett era Pink Floyd. I like, you know, the, the Dark Side of the Moon era, you know, and I like the Wall era, and I like the David Gilmore Pink Floyd now. Absolutely because of Dark Side of the Moon, people are much more familiar with that era, that period, which, you know, beautiful music, of course, you know, in, in terms of that. And I think some Pink Floyd fans that maybe didn't know Piper at the Gates of Dawn might have this idea that Shine On You Crazy Diamond and Wish You Were Here were written about this guy, Sid, that started the band. But they didn't really probably dig that deep to go back to listen to who it was. you know. And, and as you mentioned, Sid named the band. He wrote Arnold Lane, which was the first charting single. He wrote See Emily Play, the second charting single, and really started them. The songs on the first record and Jug Band Blues that's on the second one, Saucer Full of Secrets, are very peculiar songs. We were talking about punk and talking about your influences that a lot of punks loved Barrett. A lot of punks famously hated Pink Floyd. Uh, and this is my opportunity to jump in with one of my David Gilmore stories here because I was uh, playing a posh festival in a kind of English country house a few years ago. And David Gilmore was there. Uh, he's there because his wife, Polly Sampson, actually, it was, a, it was a literary festival, really. And Polly was there. So he'd just come along to accompany her. In the evenings, there was a huge table in this grand banqueting hall and all the artists would sort of come there for dinner together. There was actually more artists than audience. That's what I remember of this festival. You know, it's like a sort of posh, <laughs> posh English garden party. David Gilmore was there. And who else was there? Glenn Matlock was there from the mm. Sex Pistols, sitting either side of me. And I thought, didn't you used to wear a T-shirt that said, we fucking hate Pink Floyd? <laughs> anyway, I later... Think it was, I think it was Paul Cook was wearing that Paul shirt. Cook. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Later that evening, this is a classic case of, you know, revenge is a dish best served cold. It was a charity auction, and Glenn Matlock wrote the uh, lyrics for Pretty Vacant out on a, a napkin, uh, and it was auctioned for charity, and it got 600 quid, and I thought, that's pretty good. Then David Gilmore uh, drew the first four notes from Shine On You Crazy Diamond on a napkin, and it went for three and a half thousand. <laughs> <laughs> the reason yeah. I mentioned that was that I seem to remember that John Lydon was a, was a Barrett fan. Yeah, there were stories that The Dam tried to get Sid Barrett to mm. produce their first record, right? Which mm. I think Nick Mason ended up doing. Cedric Bixler Zavala, who's in the Mars Volta, who covered Sid Barrett track, you know, he says that he was the original punk, right? Mm. That there's definitely some trajectory, I think, just the resistance to the industry in some ways and the creativity. Well, the songs themselves, because whether it's intended or not, a kind of naivety. You talked about the chord changes, quite quite tricky to copy. It's almost as though somebody who doesn't really know the sort of theory of chord changes, so just goes with it. And it's got that wonderful wonky thing, which a lot of punk songs had too, you know. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah. There, think of it as like there, there's lots of gaps and holes in the music, right? That I think musicians love that, you know. Um, Thurston Moore from Sonic Youth saw our film in London. We talked for about two hours afterwards. And I was like, oh yeah, Sonic Youth kind of detunes their guitars and <laughs> does these noise breaks in the middle of the pop songs, you know, and things like that. You Like you're saying, the freedom that is a lot of those recordings that Sid did. I mean, even the Floyd stuff that he wrote, there's so much freedom in it. Does feel in some ways completely intuitive and completely mm. much more guided, maybe like you're saying, from the emotions that he's trying to get out in some way. The rough edges are kept in there. The rough edges are kept in, absolutely, yeah, which is totally punk. Yeah, yeah. and it's also a huge contrast with the actual perfection of Dark Side of the Moon, which is, a, which is without any doubt is a work of art, you know, but it's a complete contrast, isn't it? So it makes sense, of course, that people might know one Floyd and not the other. But so just to return to you and to fill in a bit of backstory here, so you'd made a film about Storm Thorgerson, right? And Storm Thorgerson, half of hypnosis, hypnosis are not only friends of Pink Floyd, but they become the designers for 
their album sleeves, you know, some of the most famous rock album sleeves ever, and they designed a lot of other album sleeves as well. Storm knew them all, didn't it? So that's really your route to join him on making this film about Sid. Yeah, it's strange because done a feature film called I Was Born But, which is a nicked title from an Ozu film. It starts off with um, the death of Joey Ramone because I lived around the corner from CBGB's. And a musician, a guy, Chris Brokaw, he was a band, in a band called Codeine. I asked him to score the film. And so he, he, he did the musical score. It was not punk at all, which was very interesting and did quite well. And then one day he came through New York and he said, I've just been in Storm Thorgerson's studio in London. And I was like, who's that? Is that a Finnish black metal <laughs> singer? Or what? And he said, no, he was part of Hypnosis, the record cover design company. And I said, really? Uh, yeah, I remember those sleeves. You know, that was one of the things that I mentioned earlier, you know, about scouring all the liner notes, mm -hmm. you know, and I remember seeing design by Hypnosis. He said, oh yeah, I'm friends with Storm's illustrator, Dan Abbott. And um, they just shot this cover. He described how they shot this cover by digging out the beach in Devon, building these steps down and then them going up on a ladder and just taking a picture. And I thought with Photoshop now, you think you've done that five seconds. And my friend Chris said, no, Storm still believes in the truth of the light. And so I got kind of obsessed with that. And then um, I bought this book and um, flipped through it. And I freaked out how many covers that they had done that I didn't know. I became obsessed. One, who is this guy who shaped so much of my teen psyche? Two, uh, why was he still working like this? And I was still shooting 16 millimeter movie film. And then the third thing I was contemplating was, you know, the disappearance of vinyl records, mm. which were such a major part of my, my growing mm. up and identity. And so I wrote him and wrote him and wrote him. And uh, finally he said, you know, I'm doing a talk at BAFTA in two weeks. You want to come? And, and it, he responded to the one email where I described seeing Pink Floyd, one anecdote that he replied to. And so I showed up there and he said, I can't talk to you, go with my assistants. And the whole day we bought cabbages and filled up the trunk of this car with cabbages. And that night at BAFTA, there was like a couple hundred people. He was doing a lecture about his covers, had a, a little set set up and he was projecting images of the work, had a woman getting body painted with eyeballs on the back, on her back, live body painting, very 60s. Very Ken's cultural, yeah. Exactly. And in the middle, they stopped the lecture and they handed out all the heads of cabbages to everyone in the audience and Storm Art directed a photo shoot where they had to hold the cabbages in front of their heads. And he took a photo from the stage and I was just like, what is going on here? <laughs> and then literally the next day I went there and he said, I can't talk to you, Roddy, go sit in the corner. <laughs> so I sat in the corner. I turned on my tape recorder though. I was, I was, you know, secretly taping everything. He's like, we're naming a new Pink Floyd record. If you have any good ideas, yell them out, you can name a Pink Floyd cover. And so at the end of the day, you know, he then asked me to help him clean out a room. So literally I was throwing out into the dumpster down the stairs, drafting table, and he was ripping up posters. So he got me to work for him for about an hour and a half. <laughs> and then after that, we had a cup of tea and he said, so what do you want to do? You know, I initially had this idea to just shoot him going to where he did some of the covers and tell mm. stories about the memories of them. And so my whole thing was going to be about memory. I wanted to take him to Death Valley because he shot a cover there, which was amazing for this Canadian band, Blink of the Star, which was an ice swan melting in Death Valley. And I really love that image. And I wanted to take him out there and, you know, plop him in there and tell the story. And he said, I can't go out there, right? I've got an interview in the morning. Why don't we shoot an interview where we shot Wish You Were Here on the Burbank studio lot? And I literally, you know, I was went back to my place and I was Googling Burbank television studio, you know, and I happened to call my friend Matthew, this English guy from uh, high school who had become a film editor. Meanwhile, strangely enough, we both ended up in the film industry. And I asked him, I said, this might be a crazy thing, Matthew, but I'm here doing this film about Storm Thorker. And he's, oh, hypnosis. He knew who he was right away. And he said, well, my best mate runs post-production there. And I was like, are you kidding me? He's like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Just go. We're given permits. Mm. <laughs> and we drove around and because Storm was handicapped, he had had a stroke, we were able to drive the car around and we jumped out and shot an interview there. And because of that, we became so close, probably talked two or three times a week on the phone. And I ended up art directing a few shoots in, in New York and things like that. And we traveled together and a lot of stuff, had a lot of adventures. It was about two and a half years of making this documentary about him. It did very well, played at South by Southwest, 
the Museum of Modern Art in New York bought it for the permanent collection. Uh, and then literally we had screened it in Los Angeles and Rob Dickinson, who was in the band Catherine Wheel, who was in the film, said to Storm, Storm, Roddy should do the film about Sid Barrett, the proper one that hasn't been done. Hmm. I mean, the, the, when, when Storm asked me, he said, what do you know about Sid Barrett, though? <laughs> and I, you know, we were having breakfast and I stopped eating my eggs and I said, <laughs> well, you know, and I told him a story about this band that I was in in college uh, and the bass player loved Sid Barrett's music. And we would sit in his room and try and learn the songs and we couldn't figure them out because it was just so <laughs> strange chord, chord sequence changes and chord sequences like yeah, and yeah, yeah, yeah didn't yeah. follow the sort of mm. normal pattern and so i told storm that and he he laughed at that and uh and i said i also love his lyrics and he said oh maybe you are the one i said um you know i know a bit about sid but and i love you dearly but after two and a half years with you i need a break <laughs> so give me give me a couple months went away on holiday and I bought the biographies about Sid mm. to see if there could be a film. And I came back to Storm and I said, yeah, I'm, I'm in. And we met in Berlin and wrote out um, two page outline of who we'd want to interview and what kind of stories we would want to prove or debunk. You know, there's a lot of myths around Sid, as you, as you mentioned earlier. And then one day in a classic Storm way, I got a phone call. My phone rings and it's Storm. And he, and he says, where are you, Roddy? I said, I'm in New York. And he said, I'm in LA. We're starting the Sid film. And I said, what? He's like, are you coming? And I was like, I can't jump on a plane right now. And he's like, okay, never mind." What I didn't know is Storm had had colon cancer that had gone into remission uh, and it had started returning. He wanted to be involved in the film as much as he could. Mm -hmm. But then I realized after a little while, I mean, this was a, a very big emotional moment for me, that he was using the film kind of as a, a way to say goodbye mm. to all their friends. So he'd show up and say, hey, I'm doing this film about our friend, our old friend Sid, you know, to whoever it was, their girlfriends or band managers. And the director, Roddy Bagao, I don't know where the fuck he is. He's in Hawaii. He's in L.A., New York. I don't know. So I'm going to do the interview. And here I am. And I'm ill. It was always thought that Storm would be around the periphery mm. and Storm and I wrote the questions, the interview questions together. And we did quite a few of the interviews together. We did, we shot Roger Waters together. I interviewed Mick Rock. I interviewed Rosemary um, Breen, Sid's sister after Storm had passed away. But he did a lot of the, the London interviews. But having him there, I think made our film quite different than a lot of other kinds of documentaries. Yeah, I wanted to jump in because um, that's very touching to hear you say that. And I didn't know that actually, that it was this kind of valedictory moment. I'm just imagining that a way, I suppose, of closing the loop with regard to Sid and his friendship that went back to being young dudes together and all that history and everything. And so he's there sometimes, we're there together sometimes. And I'm guessing that because of his connection not only with Sid but with all those people the, the rest of the members of the Pink Floyd and, and all their mutual friends from Cambridge and the fact that he was dying that probably opened doors and got people to open up about their memories in a way that probably nobody else could have done right yeah I think you know one thing that I said I don't want to do it unless we can do like an intimate film mm. you know I have no interest in doing kind of a you know stayed documentary talked a lot about as we started doing the interviews a lot about how to like as you mentioned the doors to the memories right like i think you're absolutely dead on that i talk about it in this way it's not really confessionals or um you know regret or nostalgia in some ways in some ways it felt like releases mm -hmm. you know and, and you know the way i talk about the punk scene like this idea that that was such an important counterculture moment that i i don't know if it's been repeated maybe i wasn't in the uk during the rave scene and and the how you know and the, or the manchester scene and maybe that those were moments of that as well but that particular moment in the 60s you know when the ufo club and the films mm -hmm. were playing and the indica bookstore and all the and international times all that sort of stuff brewing around in fashion too fashion and art, right? The, the explosion of that stuff. If you crack that door open a little bit, all of a sudden it's like the, flood, the floodgates open. It's kind of beautiful because I, I know that audiences that don't know me, that don't know Storm, that didn't know about Sid are responding to the film because I think that comes through. That, right. I, and everybody has that. Everybody has that kind of moment in their life, whatever mm -hmm. it was, where 
whether it's about your friendship, you know, your, your, your long lost friend or whatever it was, everybody shares that kind of feeling, that emotion. Yeah. So one of the things which really struck me is that it is a film about friendship and it's quite unusual in the sense that you have all these people, the interviewees, many of whom were friends from Cambridge, right? And they were a quite small but quite tight-knit group of men and women or boys and girls really then, uh, several of whom, you know, kind of went on to do things um, in the arts world and various other places. Of course, you know, Roger Waters and David Gilmore were friends of Sid's, you know, and, and Jenny, bless her, Jenny Spires, who's the reason that we're talking now, girlfriend and then friend of Sid and, and all the others, you know, and many of them are dead now, of course, and none of them died since the film or since the interviews that you guys did with them, right? So it really came across as this kind of family affair in a strange way, and an unusual bunch of people in the sense that some of them went on to be huge superstars. So there is that sense of, yeah, older people remembering their youth, but it's remembering a youth which, you know, was an extraordinary time, you know, maybe like Manchester too, maybe like, maybe like the rave scene too, you know, it was in terms of, say, the counterculture and the swinging 60s and the psychedelic revolution. And right at the centre of all those is this guy. And I said to you before we started, there's always seemed to me to be something about Sid Barrett that the kind of poster child for the dreams of the counterculture that in some ways, a tremendous societal changer, but in other ways it failed. Some of my interviews have said, we, we failed. Pete Jenner said to me, we failed. And I was like, what do you mean you failed? They failed in terms of like, they had this vision to change the world totally, maybe through music, maybe through acid, maybe through new ways of thinking, new ways of living and loving. And it didn't do it, right? And it went dark, it went wrong. And, and somehow Sid Barrett seems to hold the myth of that, the myth of beautiful potential of the 60s and the counterculture in this country anyway, and how, how it crashed. For sure. You know, when you see the, the images of him from that moment, I mean, it's just unbelievable. You know, then you go, oh yeah, Mark Boland's taking off from that. David you know, Bowie. David Bowie. At one point we were trying to get Bowie and I, and I was reaching out. At that time, no one knew he was ill. So, you know, we weren't able to get an interview with him, but I wanted that first person kind of experience, you know, someone that was there. And Orion Williams, who's the, the one of the producers on the film, one day called me up and he said, you know, I was just with Pete Townsend. He's, he's been working on something with Pete for a while. And he said, the Who are on tour. And Pete yelled at me saying, why am I not in your Sid Barrett film? <laughs> uh, and he said, we're playing a couple of dates and we're coming back down to LA. Call Roddy, get him to come out. And so Orion called me. I said, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm booking a ticket now. On the flight, I was thinking, you know, the Who, art school guys, auto-destructive stuff, the noise, the feedback, Pete becoming um, part of the Eastern religion movement pretty early. And so I said, oh, that makes sense. And Pete wouldn't tell us what he was going to talk about. He said to Orion, I'm not going to tell you what I'm going to say. I'm just going to come to your house, have Roddy there with a the camera, you know, but was, what was amazing was that all of a sudden he said, I was at the UFO club. Hmm. You know, I had taken Eric Clapton to see Jimmy and blew his brains with Jimmy. And so I thought I would take Eric to see Sid. And, you know, and so all of a sudden we had this, this window where Pete was describing him, you know, physically, visually, you know, even how he technically was trying to make the sounds, you know, with the two Ekarak units and all these things. And it was just incredible, but you could see in the way Pete was describing it. He was like right back at that moment, totally. you know, totally, standing yeah. there in front of Sid, just kind of waiting, you know, like, you know, you know, with all the light stuff going on and Pete's interview is like four hours long and someday we'll put out the whole thing. Cause it's just so amazing. He cried in it. He was just unbelievably fantastic. I never met him before. And he's one of my guitar heroes. Uh, which I didn't say to him that time, but I'll tell him at one point. But there is the element of what if, what could have been in his story, you know, in Sid's story. And so there's always that kind of myth making behind him. On the subjects of myth, and this is the other thing which I really liked about your film, is that I read Rob Chapman's biography of Sid, and I've interviewed Rob actually, and he's a good journalist, right? But I didn't feel that he did Sid justice because... Rob seems to me the sort of journalist who doesn't let 
a good story get in the way of the facts, as it were, rather than the other way around. Uh, there is something mythic about the Sid Roger Barrett story. And that isn't just because of the person, but it's because of the culture and the counterculture all these things happening. I feel that way often about, you know, musicians and artists and writers too, is that they're not just the property of themselves. You know, they become who they are through the culture. And in the case of Rob Chapman's book, maybe this was the price of getting the family to cooperate. It's a sort of debunking book. It debunks the myths, and some of them definitely need to be debunked. They were kind of ludicrous, you know, the things about Sid Barrett sort of running after a plane on the runway and stuff. It's They were just sort of silly, and he, he set that to rest. But at the same time, it kind of deconstructed the myth somewhat. And what I liked about your film, partly because you use an actor or a series of actors to represent Sid in a kind of abstracted way, um, which is rather beautifully done, is that I felt that it restored the myth of Sid Barrett in a way that was very valuable. Rob explaining where Sid stole some of his lyrics from, maybe that is a fact. But what does it tell us? What does it give us about the mythical figure of Sid Barrett? Yeah. And I thought you put that back. Oh, thank you. Yeah. I think you absolutely have to preserve some of that in some ways because nobody really knows. That was... You know, the, the title, Have You Got It Yet, was, you know, was referencing the song, you know, the famous song story, which Nick Mason confirmed that it was true, that Sid came in with this track knowing that he was going to be booted from the band. And it said, this is a song, new song I've written, Have You Got It Yet? And as they were trying to learn it, he would change it every single time. So they, you know, they threw down their instruments and gave up after a half hour. And so Nick Mason said, yeah, that's true. But my my using of that title also just had to do with his life you know mm. that can you get can you get his life storm and i also talked about the film as kind of a, a prism or a kaleidoscope you know of all these friends you know because they didn't see him you know all throughout none of them you know storm hadn't seen him for years before he went to do the madcap shots with with mick rock so they only saw bits and pieces Meanwhile, all these things were happening to him. You know, he's he's all of a sudden on top of the pops. Um, so there's that that mystery. I mean, which was the dramatic premise that interested me. I felt as a director, to be honest, kind of keeping that spirit alive that you should not connect all the dots. For me, there was the treat not the treatment of Roger Barrett. And Roger, of course, for anybody who doesn't know, was actually Sid Barrett's real name. And again, if you don't know the stories, is that after he was kicked out of Pink Floyd, he he made a couple of amazing solo albums but you know very strange punky chaotic things and then just effectively disappeared went underground ended up back in cambridge and lived a life of a recluse and it's all very mysterious it's true to that but it's also true to i think the kind of you know the countercultural myth of sid and you refer to the mystery we never will get it will we we never will actually understand really what happened uh, but you spent some time with rosemary his sister and i think one of the mysteries to me about his life the story is that, you know, back in Cambridge, he, he's got less, he's got some mental health issues, put it that way, right? We're not quite sure what they were, whether they've been brought on by um, a drug or, the, you know, the pressures of fame or a combination of these things or pre-existing condition or whatever. But he's, you know, he ends up effectively out of circulation. And Dave Gilmore refers to this in the film that the family didn't want him to be reminded of the Pink Floyd times. That's a little bit understandable, but what's always been a mystery to me is why do you think he didn't want to have it, or why didn't the family want him to have any connection with people like Jenny, who knew him before the Pink Floyd times? Because his old friends, his childhood friends, who knew him and loved him very deeply, and to whom he was this incredibly sort of fun character, he's back in their town, and yet they never see him. It's almost like they're not allowed to see him. Why, Roddy? Tell us. That's <laughs> solve, solve the mystery, please. <laughs> That's the million-dollar question. I mean, it's very interesting that you bring that up because we went to Cambridge several times, you know, to do different shoots and do different interviews. And, it's, and, and we went to the pub where apparently Sid or Roger drank at later on and things like that. People in Cambridge seem super, super protective still of this person that not many of them even knew. So I wonder if you're putting your finger on it, which is that idea of the myth, you know, the idea of this character. I don't think that they thought he was scary. I mean, there, there are some stories like, 
you know, that were repeated in some of the books that he was barking like a dog or things like that. And then, you know, banging his head on the wall. But then we realize when they sell all his, his belongings that he actually built painting tables and things like that. So yes. henceforth, probably the banging. <laughs> yeah, exactly. But they were kind of respectful of his privacy in some interesting way. You know, where they just, maybe it was because you know, the stories of the journalists always trying to doorstop mm. him and those types of things. We, we've had two screenings in Cambridge, you know, at the Picture House, which Jenny uh, was at the screening with us and did the Q&A. And she said, this is where Sid saw the Beatles. And I was like, holy moly, you know, it's fantastic. We're screening the film here. Even now, the younger ones, they seem protective of this, this character, this figure. Um, and maybe maybe it is to keep the myth somewhat intact. One of the beautiful things that David says in the film about, I feel like I should have just went and had a cup of tea. And Storm said, yeah, why didn't we? You know, and But they could have. Any of them could have. But then you think about it and you, and you think, well, bits of Dark Side of the Moon are about mental illness. Certainly, uh, Shine on You Crazy Diamond and Wish You are Here about Sid. Parts of the Wall are about Sid. So as Sid becomes more and more... Underground, again, is a countercultural figure, even in his later years. They become one of the biggest bands in the world, writing some of the most beautiful music about him. So they kind of have to keep him somewhat intact as a, 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 as a mythological character in some way. I don't think it was conscious. I don't think it was, you know, calculated or anything like that. Because when, you know, in the interviews, you can see it come through. You know, they remember their friendship. They remember their the story about their growing up together, and they remember the early years of the band. You know, and things like that. So there's definitely they they there's that raw emotion still. So you're right. Gilmore's um you know he it's a very touching moment when he expresses regret about not visiting uh, Sid during those reclusive years. You know, he could have just gone by for a cup of tea. I, th- I think he says something like, you know, it might have done him some good, and it might have done me some good. And that was quite, right. I thought that was quite yeah. telling because in a way, what is he saying then? He's saying that he's got a lot of unresolved stuff about it. Maybe some guilt, you know, still about the fact that they kicked him out of the band. But also I think you've said something very interesting there, which is that he became in absentia part of their success. The, the songs about, you know, mental affliction on Dark Side of the Moon. And then of course on Wish You Were Here. It's almost like it's an album about him. Can they afford in a way, for him to be back as he is. Yeah. Uh, I don't mean in a calculating financial way, but in just in the sense of like, when you've mythologized somebody so successfully, is it a good idea to meet one's heroes? You know, is it a good idea to meet one's mythic mentors? But just to return to something which is still puzzles me, even despite all that, is that, but what about Jenny? You know, what about those people who knew him before the Pink Floyd era, you know, why not them? It's such a dramatic change in persona from the person who is this, you know, bouncing on the front of his feet as you talk about him, writing these songs, you know, the psychedelic print, to somebody who's incommunicado. It's very, mm. very strange. I mean, did you really get to why that might have been? I talked to Storm a lot about that, you know, when we were talking about why he stopped. And Storm had this theory that he, you know, had this innocent muse from his childhood where the songs just came out of him very carefree and that he lost it at some point, whether it was because of the LSD use or the touring of the band and the success. And I told him, I said, you know, for me, it's not really a tragic story, but it affects me emotionally because I I see his character as somebody who found a way to express what was inside them. And it's like this kind of great, wow, I can express myself to the world, but then all these things change around them and then it becomes pressurized and and it shifts all those kinds of things that were once really carefree and, and joyful. And, and I also told Storm, you know, Storm, at that age, I kicked out so many guys from bands, you don't even know. It's only that they, we didn't become Pink Floyd. So it's like, you know, so it's, it's kind of yeah. a funny thing that I think about that, you know, that age, when you're growing up 15, 16, 17, those really formative years. And Matthew, that, that English friend of mine who played drums, we reconnected through the internet. Uh, because all of a sudden, he said, Hey, I see you make films now. I, I'm a film editor. You know, and he was working with Michael Mann on Heat and and all these great films. There's many friends from that moment that we never reached out. And so I think in some ways, Sid could be one of those people. Like, you know, he was somebody that you were 
very close to you're right cambridge is a pretty small town though <laughs> it's like it's not it's not like somebody lives in new york and somebody lives in la and so you've got to be somehow meeting in between cambridge is pretty small you could meet him at the post office or whatever yeah there was an interview with uh, roger from uh, queen you know the drummer roger taylor uh, yeah. And talking about John Deacon, the bass player, and um, he said he hasn't seen him for years. It's, so basically, what happened after Freddie Mercury's death? I think John Deacon sort of hung up his his bass guitar. That was it. And you know, mm. Queen have kind of sort of carried on in a sort of strange way. He was saying, well, you know, he's become a recluse, and nobody really knows why. It's a little bit like a kind of Sid Barrett story, kind of like fifty years on with an older man. But one of the comments that was made actually in response to this piece was. Well, maybe you just didn't want to be famous anymore. And I think mm. that in the world that we live in, where everybody wants to be a bit famous, um, that seems inexplicable. <laughs> well, somebody somebody <laughs> doesn't want to be famous, you know. Or, yes. or, and even more astonishingly, you've been famous and you don't want to carry on being famous. It's like a it's a sort of oxymoron, isn't it? it just doesn't make any yeah. sense. And with John Deacon, you know, after Freddie Mercury died, maybe you just thought, you know what, I'm done. I mean, I'm, I'm wealthy. I don't need to do anything. I've had my taste of the banquet of everything that fame brings. I've eaten my fill. I don't need it anymore. I don't want it anymore. That's just don't want it anymore. Maybe this is what you hint at is that maybe you've also lost your muse for whatever reason, your countercultural spirit that wrote the songs that made you dress a certain way, that made you bounce on the front of your feet. And it's gone. Once it's gone, maybe you don't really want to be it anymore. Yeah, I'm intrigued by the comment you said about Peter Jenner, too, that, and Peter Wynn Wilson says this in the film, we thought we were moving towards a utopia. You know, so maybe that that also was a pressure idea, you know, mm. that you think all of these things are going to build to some changing of everyone's thinking across all of culture, that the counterculture would shift all those types of things. Sid being kind of the epicenter of that, you know, at that moment, must have been pretty crazy. Jenny recently sent me a, a photo spreadsheet of this modeling agency. I was like, was everybody models in the 60s? What? <laughs> yeah, it's like, looked like it was so groovy. Yeah. Like everybody was. Everybody's super thin. Yeah, they're all models. They're all smoking. <laughs> and it's like, I was like, holy shit, I want to. We missed out. Because certainly in London, um, this is the impression I've got from several guests. You know, it was, it was a very small scene. Maybe like you're talking about the punk scene in LA, you know, everybody knew each other. They're all they're all from the same town, Cambridge or Canterbury or, you know, a few other places. And and you know, the the UFO club, it just lasted for a few months. And it was a few hundred yeah. people. But it just so happens that a lot of them went on to do great things. And I suppose, you know, one of my final questions for you, Roddy, is this. Sid Barrow formed this band. They had some commercial success and they were right at the heart of the swinging sixties counterculture in London. The band that he was kicked out of went on to global domination, one of the best-selling bands of all time, and made some incredible music, right? If they hadn't, would we still be talking about Sid Barrett? That's the big question, because I I think probably not. I, I can't remember how many years ago Sid Barrett was on the cover of Enemy as still the number one cult icon. Mm-hmm. You know, just a few years ago, above everybody, figures that have had similar stories. I mean, I think a lot about Peter Green from Fleetwood Mac or Brian, you know, the Brian Jones um, from the Stones, you know, whatever they had inside them, whether, whether it was demons or angels, as one of the doctors says in her film, and then everything around them just collapses and 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 the combination of things you know, makes the fracture that probably made them creative and artistic just becomes damaging in some way, you know, or becomes a, a, that's the curious part of it. Because I think there have been figures in music that have gone that way, but not had the same kind of impact. Uh, Chris Cornell, you know, on the last Soundgarden tour was playing Baby Lemonade, you know, with his band, you know, it's interesting how, how Sid's music and his persona have maybe gotten, you know, more intriguing as time goes on. Really, because Pink Floyd became so successful. It's not that the story itself wouldn't be interesting. And so with Peter Green's a good example, isn't it, in a way, because Fleetwood Mac became hugely successful. Um, but yeah. he kind of did it. He had a comeback. So there was a, there was a sort, of, sort of happy ending, wasn't there? With, because Pink Floyd became massive, because 
two of their biggest and best albums feel like they're about this guy. That's really why we care, isn't it? Not that we wouldn't care for this interesting character in a smaller way, but we wouldn't care so much, would we? You're right. They, through those records and through some of the images that they created with the music about Sid, it did create this this character, this persona in some ways that people maybe got obsessed with. But I, th- I think it's a complicated thing because I do think there's also a huge load of Sid Baird fans that saw him as the, that was the hope, that was the the figure we were going to follow. You know, I came away with thinking that nobody really knew what happened to him. You know, we interviewed a doctor whose specialty was autism, and which we ultimately didn't include, include because there was no analysis of that back in the, you know, in the 60s and 70s. But when she described the the characteristics of autism, I said, oh my God, that's like, Check, 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 you know. But, including but, including but she, walking on the front of your feet. Absolutely. But she said, she also then put a caveat in, which is, you know, I can't do an analysis of somebody that I haven't interviewed, I haven't met. When she said that, I was like, okay, yeah, that makes total sense. And that's also the driving thing with all the other interviews. Mm. They saw him at one point, but not another point. Um, so no one really, really knows. So I think that there, that is an inherent dramatic premise construction as well. Like I mentioned earlier, audiences that don't know much about Sid Barrett or Pink Floyd even Mm. that have heard about the film come up to me and they've said to me, you know, my son suffers from mental illness Mm. and, you know, this film touched me in this Mm. way. I was interviewed by somebody who said something very astutely said, you know, your film made me remember all the three friends I couldn't say goodbye to during the pandemic. Right. There's something there with the the idea of that it's about memory. Mm. You know, it's about a time, mm-hmm. a countercultural moment that does make um, his figure bigger than life in some ways. You talked earlier about restoring that. So there's something there in that story that touches people on different levels. It is anchored in that counterculture moment. It is anchored in the dreams of utopia. That is part of the specialness of that moment. The Roddy, thanks very much for coming to the Bureau of Lost Culture. Thanks for having me, Stephen. Enjoyed it very much. It was a pleasure. Thanks to Roddy. I really enjoyed that. It still remains a mystery, still remains a fascinating subject. I'll put links to Roddy's work and to the film Have You Got It Yet in the show notes. I think, as Roddy said, it's going to be streaming fairly soon, so do check it out. If you're a Pink Floyd fan, if you're a Sid Barrett fan, or you're just a fan of film, it's a really enjoyable film and a brilliant uh, evocation of a particular time. Thanks again to Jenny Spies. Without her, I wouldn't have managed to do this episode and various other ones. Thanks to you guys for listening to episode 101. Keep the suggestions coming. Still not a time to actually digest all the ones that I've been given yet, but I'm about to do that and always keen to hear from people, always keen to hear about your ideas about this crazy thing called cancer culture. I will hear you and see you down the road, round the bend, for more stories from the underground. In the meantime, here's a tune to finish it all off.